The message comes to us today, a beloved passage in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Reads like this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. Where is that hand? Do not be anxious of anything. But in prayer and supplication through thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. This is the word of God. Well, we are desperate as people to celebrate, to enjoy something, aren't we? Ran across this uh, article, this year celebrates the 25th anniversary of a small tree, bush, often called a weed, that is growing on the Philadelphia, or that grew once on the Philadelphia Turnpike. Clayton, Delaware resident, saw it, decided to go and decorate it 25 years ago. When they did, a news uh, station, a television station picked it up, ran the story on the local news, and when they ran the story on the local news, well, the uh, Delaware DOT saw it, thought perhaps it would be uh, a distraction, and they went and summarily removed the decorated little tiny shrub. Well, that caused quite a stir. People had grown quickly fond of this decorated shrub, so what did the people do? They got one, put it back on the turnpike. Someone stole it. This happened about seven or eight times, when finally that year, in one single year, somebody found, uh, got another uh, uh, artificial shrub, put it there, decorated it, zip-tied it uh, to the guardrail so that no one could get it. Today, there is a parade in Clayton, Delaware, to celebrate, oh, Christmas weed, oh, Christmas weed. Yes, that's what it is. And to this day, if you go Google this, you, some of you are doing right now, um, if you go Google this, you will discover this decorated shrub that sits on the uh, Philadelphia Turnpike. Uh, there is a parade still today, 25 years later, all centered around a little shrub. Why? Because deep inside the human soul is a desire to enjoy. You should not feel guilty because you want to enjoy something. That should not make you feel bad. There is a longing in you for joy to well up out of you over something. Paul shared your feelings. He shared your feeling. Jesus knew you would feel this way. Jesus is into your joy. He says in John 10, the thief, Satan, 
Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. All right? You could add, uh, parenthetically, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy your joy. But I have come that you might have joy. You might have abundant, joy-filled life. So how can you have that? Paul writes this letter to the Philippians from a jail. And in this letter, Paul talks about imminent death, attacks from ungodly critics, personality clashes among Christians. If there's anyone who should not be enjoying life, it's Paul. But 16 times in this letter, Paul references joy. Joy. He gives four commands in these three verses. What are they? Rejoice in the Lord. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Do not be anxious about anything. Let your requests be made known to God. So here goes. I am convinced of this. These are not equal commands. They do not command the same priority. The first command is essential if two, three, and four are going to happen. If you are going to let your reasonableness be known to everyone, if you are not going to be anxious about anything, if you're going to pray about everything, the only way you can do that is to joy in Jesus, is to rejoice, is to enjoy, enjoy, smile on your face, enjoy God. So let's look at that command to rejoice in the Lord always. How do you rejoice in someone? You rejoice in who they are and what they do. To rejoice in someone is to rejoice in who they are and what they do. So when we talk of rejoicing in Jesus uh, this morning, I could go to a list. And this sermon I prepared twice. I prepared it weeks ago. And when I prepared it weeks ago, I, I did so and I went to a list. And then when I sat down this week to look back through, it just wasn't right. And so I went back to it and I began to work again. And I believe led by the Spirit was impressed to go to one reality of Jesus that both encompasses who he is and what he did and what he does. And that is found in Isaiah 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Everybody say Emmanuel. Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So, Emmanuel means God 
with us. That's what it means, God with us. With all the words Isaiah could have chosen 700 years ago to describe this Messiah. Why? Why, Isaiah, do you go to Emmanuel? And notice the familiarity of what he says. His name shall be called Emmanuel. What's the very next phrase? He shall what? Eat. That is so base, isn't it? If I'm going to describe this coming King of Kings, this coming Lord of Lords, I will not use the phrase, well, he's going to eat. Why? Why, Isaiah, do you say he shall eat curds and honey? Do you know why? Because Emmanuel means God with us. And so I'm going to do a little field test right here. If you're sitting in the room this morning and you have ever in your life eaten, would you raise your hands? That's why. That's why. Isaiah says God with us is going to be so with us that God is going to take on a human body with the capacity and the need to take food and to put it in his mouth and to digest it just like every single one of you have done who've ever lived or will done, will do who, have, who will ever live. Jesus will eat food. This coming king will eat food. This morning, I want to introduce some of you for the first time and reacquaint others of you with a Jesus you can enjoy, a Jesus in whom you can rejoice. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you that before Jesus came screaming into the world as Mary's son, he did not possess a body. He was God the Son without a body. He came into the world and took on human flesh. In theology we call this the incarnation. The incarnation it is the one of the least preached about doctrines, but one that is most critical to mind and salvation today. You say, why? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been tired? Yeah. In John 4, 6, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. If you've ever been tired, so is Jesus. Have you ever been hungry? In Matthew 4, 2, after being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and nights, Jesus was hungry. Have you ever been physically weak? When he was tempted, he became so tired that angels came and ministered to him. Have you ever been grief-stricken? Some of you are today. First 
holiday without, and you fill in the blank. When Lazarus died, Jesus cried. Have you ever prayed until you cried and couldn't pray anymore? Because tears overcame your words. The writer of Hebrews, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was hurt for his godly fear. I think the writer of Hebrews is referring to the Garden of Gethsemane in which Jesus prayed until his uh, uh, sweat became like, like drops of blood. Have you ever been troubled in your soul? Just before his crucifixion, Jesus said, now is my soul troubled. Have you ever been thirsty? On the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. Have you ever been exhausted? When Jesus was carrying his cross up Golgotha, he fell under its weight, and the soldiers forced Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. One day you will die on the cross. He cried, it is finished. I didn't include this as I went through the list. Have you ever been tempted? According to the writer of Hebrews, he was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. That's God becoming flesh. There isn't an experience you will ever have that he has not already had and had to the full. There is, in this, except for sin, never sin, but he knows what it is to be you. He knows what it is to walk a day in your shoes. He knows what it is to be hungry, to be sleepy, to be tired, to be exhausted, to be grief-stricken, to be tempted, to be rejected, to be denied. He knows what it is to be you. And he did it sinlessly and perfectly. God became a man and he ate. God of the universe ate curds and honey. He ate food. That's who he was. But what about what he did? I'm giving you something to joy about today. Because Jesus became a human being, you and I can become children of God. Did you get that? Because Jesus became a human being, you and I get to be children of God. John, he is now old. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He is exiled. You may not know, but John in those latter years was dropped in boiling oil, but it did not consume his body. He sits riding exiled on an island. And when he's writing about the Jesus who became a man, what is he saying? John with scars all over his body says this, see what kind of what church? Say it again. What kind of what? 
the Father has given to us that we should be called what? Children of God. Because Jesus became a human being, you and I can become children. I went looking at other translations this week to see how do other translators, this what kind of love phrase is just so exclamatory. It's hard to grasp in the English language. Here's the other phrases. See what great love. See how very much our Father loves us. The complete Jewish Bible. See what love the Father has lavished on us. Look at how great a love the Father has given us. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Because Jesus was a sinless man, we as sinful people can be forgiven. Because Jesus died as a man, we as people can live. Because Jesus resurrected as a man, we as people can rise from the dead. Because Jesus ascended as a man, we as people can go to heaven. Wow. Can you joy in that this morning? Can you take joy? Can you take joy in that? That's why I am convinced that these four commands do not equally stand in importance. The first one, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, you may not have noticed as Steve read, but every one of these commands has superlatives. Let me, let me say them to you again. Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. Let your reasonableness be known to who? All. Do not be anxious about what? Anything. Pray about what? Everything. There's no wiggle room in any of this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Don't be anxious about anything. Pray about everything. Let's deal with those quickly. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Do you know what reasonableness is? It's an unusual word. The willingness to yield one's personal rights and show gentleness and consideration to others. When I think of reasonableness, the story of Robertson McQuilkin comes to mind. Dr. McQuilkin was a professor. His father years ago was president of Columbia Bible College, now Columbia International University, a remarkable mission-sending school in Columbia, South Carolina. This was years ago. In 1968, I think, McQuilkin became president of CIU. Had a remarkable presidency. The school grew incredibly. He uh, was a gifted professor, a gifted president. He was eight years short of retirement in the peak of his presidential career when his wife of 40 years, Muriel, became ill. Ill with that dreaded disease called Alzheimer's. She went quickly 
She was young, but the disease progressed rapidly. <clears throat> McQuilkin, in the height of his career, was advised by others to hire someone to take care of Muriel. But as it turns out, Muriel was miserable unless he was near. He, following in his father's footsteps, who was the first president of Columbia Bible College, says this. When the time came, the decision was firm. McQuilkin stepped down from the presidency of CIU to go home, cook food, and change diapers. He says, when the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years earlier in sickness and in health till death do us part? He says, this was no grim duty to which I stoically resigned. However, it was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. Now it was my turn. And such a partner she was, if I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. In his resignation speech to CIU, he said, it is my joy. Later he would write for Christianity Today, I want to indulge you and read a larger portion of this. I think you'll see why. To let your reasonableness be known to all is to yield your rights. We are a right-ridden culture today. We must have our rights, we say. And this issue of rights has invaded the most sacred of relationships Listen in. He says, 17 summers ago, Muriel and I began our journey into the twilight. It's midnight now, at least for her, and sometimes I wonder when dawn will break. Those of you who have been through this know what he's writing about. Even the dread Alzheimer's disease isn't supposed to attack so early and torment so long, yet in her silent world, Muriel is so content, so lovable. If Jesus took her home, how I would miss her gentle, sweet presence. Yes, there are times when I get irritated, but not often. It makes sense. It doesn't make sense to get angry. And besides, perhaps the Lord has been answering the prayer of my youth to mellow my spirit. Once, though, I completely lost it. In the days when Muriel could still stand and walk, we had not resorted to diapers. Sometimes there were accidents. I was on my knees beside her, trying to clean up the mess as she stood, confused by the toilet. It would have been easier if she weren't insistent on helping I got more and more frustrated. Suddenly, to make her stand still, 
I slapped her calf. As if that would do any good. It wasn't a hard slap, but she was startled. I was too. Never in our 44 years of marriage had I ever so much as touched her in anger or in rebuke of any kind. Never. Wasn't even tempted, in fact. But now, when she needed me most, sobbing, I pled with her to forgive me, no matter that she didn't understand words any better than she could speak them. So I turned to the Lord to tell him how sorry I was. It took me days to get over it. Maybe God bottled those tears to quench the fires that might ignite again someday. It wasn't long before I found myself in the same condition on the floor in the bathroom. Muriel wanted to help. Hadn't cleaning up messes been her specialty, but now those busy hands didn't know exactly what to do. I mopped frantically, trying to fend off the interfering hands and contemplated how best to get a soiled slip over a head that was totally opposed to the idea. At that moment, Chuck Swindoll boomed from the radio in the kitchen. Man, are you at home? Really at home? In the midst of my stinking immersion, I smiled. Yeah, Chuck, I really am. Do I ever wish I were? He goes on to say, and I so appreciate his honesty, which some of us are afraid to own. By 1992, the blows of life had left me numb. My dearest slipping from me, my eldest son snatched away in a tragic accident. My life's work abandoned at its peak. I didn't hold it against God, but my faith could be better described as resignation. The joy had drained away. The passion in my love for God had frozen over. I was in trouble. Any of you been there? If the only companion you have in the lonely hours grows distant. He later says, then I remembered the secret I had learned in younger days. Go into a mountain hideaway to be alone with God. There, though it was slow in coming, I was able to break free from preoccupation with my troubles and concentrate on Jesus. When that happened, I relearned what God had taught me more than once before. The heavy heart lifts on the wings of praise. That's why Paul, writing from a prison, facing imminent death, can pen the words, Rejoice in the Lord. How often, class? How often? Always. Let your reasonableness be known to how many people? All right. Here we go. Not just the wife you love dearly, but the guy who cuts you off in traffic. I'm like, oh, Jerry, I love that story. Why are you making this personal? Not just the, the wife you love dearly, but the person who cheated you in a business deal. 
He is to see your reasonableness too. I think all means what? Uh oh. Some of you were tracking with me to about 60 seconds ago. And all of a sudden, this command doesn't seem near as romantic, does it? Oh. Third command, do not be anxious about how much? Anything. Be anxious for nothing. This in the Greek is an absolute negative. The word anxious means undue concern. I shared this a few weeks ago. I think it'll be on the screen, but this little uh, chart uh, that helps me in my thinking. Uh, each of us has a circle of influence and we have a circle of concern. Your circle of influence is that arena in life over which you can exert some kind of authority or power or, or decision-making, that's yours. For, for some of you, it's larger. For some of you, it's smaller. Doesn't matter. The, the reality is that's where you are to live. That's where you are to act. Your circle of influence, that is that over which you have some sense of, perhaps a better word is illusion of control. But that's your influence. You ought to spend the majority of your time there. Your circle of concern are things that bother you, but you can do nothing about. Those things tend to worry you. They tend to weigh you down, but you can't fix them. You can't do anything about them. All right, if you live in your circle of concern, you will go crazy eventually, or you'll make everybody else around you crazy. Why? Because what will you do? You, you, you'll, you'll simply worry, worry, worry. Why? There's nothing you can do about your circle of concern. It's something that concerns you, but nothing you can fix. How about then your circle of concern? What do you do? That's the fourth command. You pray. You pray about that. The wondering child who is now an adult, pray. The boss who is unreasonable, pray. The medical diagnosis that is out of your control, what do you do, church? You pray. The besetting sin, the recurring temptation, the, the thing that comes again and again, the uncertainty at your place of work, you pray about that. That's what you do. You pray. Pray about everything. The word supplication means to beg. And what is the result? So to beg. Let me, let me just not skim over that. To beg. Like, like to beg God for. What is the result? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding regards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If you can, like McClilkin, go back to that place of, of reclaiming joy in a Jesus who came and lived on planet Earth and took on everything you're experiencing yet without sin. If you can somehow get back to that, right? 
And then graciousness, yielding your rights to others will come more naturally. You can pray about things. You, you cannot be anxious. If you could get there, what happens? God's peace will stand like a guard over your mind. Yeah, that's, that's the word, guard, like a sentinel. And so worries will come, and when the worries come, what happens? God, peace is like, not here. Not here. When the fear comes, not here. As a matter of fact, let me quote Chuck Swindoll in his book, Laugh Again. He talks about three joy stealers, worry, an inordinate anxiety about something that may or may not occur. That's worry. Stress, intense strain over a situation we cannot change or control. That's stress. Fear, a dreadful uneasiness over danger, evil, or pain. And it magnifies our problems. Those three, Swindoll says, are joy stealers. Some of you are in one, two, or all of those right now. So what I want you to do is take your connection card that uh, uh, James referenced earlier. And I want you to do one thing on the back of it this morning. You say, why? Because there is certain value in voicing this. And it simply says, I am worried about. I am worried about. If you sit here this morning and this Christmas season there is worry, whatever it may be, your job, your health, your relationships, a friendship, a child, a parent, an aging parent, would you simply write it here? Just write it here. We'd love for you to turn it in, and this week we'll pray about your worry. But even if you don't, there's something about the honesty of this that is freeing, and that Christ, who walked on planet Earth, longs for you to release to him. He longs for you to release to him your, your worry. For others of you, you, many of you know I grew up without television. So, zero. The only time I watched television was this time of year because we went to gr my grandmother's house and it was on. And I would look and go, oh, wow. Right, tiny little TV, mesmerized by it. But every morning when mom drove us to school in elementary school, there was an AM station. I think it was at maybe 570 on the dial out of Asheville. And there was a man on there whose name was Paul Harvey. How many of you remember Paul Harvey? Yeah. He told a story that I heard as a child and never, ever forgot. Never wanted to. So for those of you younger who've never heard him, you'll hear his story in his voice now. But most importantly, for those of you who have never received Christ, Jesus came 
so that you, as a sinner, could be a saint. So that you, who needed forgiveness, could be forgiven. He died so that you would live. I listen to this story every Christmas. Listen to Harvey's words. not a Scrooge now. He was a kind, a decent, a mostly good man, generous to his family and upright in his dealings with other men, but he just did not believe in all of that incarnation stuff which the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just did not make sense, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He could not swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. He told his wife, I'm truly sorry to distress you, but I'm just not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He said he'd feel like a hypocrite, that he'd much rather just stay home, but that he would wait up for them. So he stayed, and they went to the midnight service. Now, shortly after the family drove away and the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier. Then he went back to his fireside chair, began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound, and then another, then yet another. At first he thought somebody must be throwing snowballs against the living room window. But when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled out there miserably in the snow. They had been caught in the storm in a desperate search for shelter. They had tried to fly through his large landscape window. That was what had been making the sound. Well, he couldn't let those poor creatures just lie there and freeze. So he remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. That would provide a warm shelter. All he would have to do is direct the birds into that shelter. Quickly, he put on a coat and galoshes, and he tramped through the deepening snow to the barn, and he opened the doors wide. And inside the barn, he turned on a light so the birds would know the way in. But the birds did not come in. So he figured that food would entice them. He went back into the house and fetched some breadcrumbs and sprinkled those on the snow, making a trail of breadcrumbs to the yellow-lighted, wide-open doorway of the stable. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs. The birds just continued to flop around helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them. He could not. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around them, waving his arms, but instead they scattered in every direction, every direction except into the warm, lighted barn. And that's when he realized that they were afraid of him. They were afraid of him. To him, he reasoned, I'm a strange, terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but to help them. But how? Any move he made tended to frighten them and confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. And he thought to himself, if only I could be a bird now, if I could be a bird and mingle with them, and speak their language and tell them not to be afraid, 
Then I can show them the way to the safe, warm barn. But I would have to be one of them, wouldn't I? So they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears. Above the sounds of the wind, and he stood there listening to the bells at Deste Fidelis, listening to the bells pealing the glad tidings of Christmas, and he sank to his knees in the snow. Paul Harvey. I hope for you and those you love, this will be a wonderfully Merry Christmas. So this morning, if you have never trusted a God who would become one of you so that you could become his son or his daughter, would you? Would you trust him with your life, your dreams, your ambitions, your fears, your worries, the unknowns, the uncertainties? You say, Jerry, how can I do that? Would you bow your heads? Our team is coming. We're going to close with some wonderful Christmas hymns. How? How can I trust him? There's a simple sinner's prayer. It's called, it's a prayer of humble admission of sin, belief in who Jesus is, and commitment of your life to him. So if you're here this morning and you have never trusted Christ, and you say, I'd like to today, here's a prayer. You can pray to God right now. Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I am sorry for my sin. I believe that you came as a man, died on the cross for me. Resurrected from the dead. Please forgive me of my sins. Take charge of my life. Today, I receive you as God's wonderful gift to me. If, if you have prayed that prayer this morning for the very first time from 
place of faith and trust in Christ, would you let us know? You can do that simply on the same card. It, it says, I, my next step, receive Christ as my Savior. During any of these songs, I'll be here. If you need to come talk, want to come talk, there are plenty of people who can talk with you if you want to talk after the service. I would say to you, welcome to the family of God. Oh, Jesus, thank you for becoming one of us. There are people in this room that this is yet to hit this morning. Those who've known you for quite some time, but there are, there are fuzzy things in their minds. May the songs now drive home the truth of your word. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand, let's worship.